Okay, everyone. We're on page 340. As I said, chapter 37, I go to America. And thus far we've seen Paramahansa Yogananda get onto the boat mm -hmm. and the what appears now to be a comical situation where somebody on the boat, on the ship says, oh, you're going to this, you know, Congress, let's give this big talk representing India. Why don't you give us a talk here on the ship as well? But, you know, Yoganandaji leaves this one tiny detail out where he doesn't speak English or hasn't yet spoken English before. And of course, by divine grace and through the grace of his guru, in that moment while he's standing there for 10 minutes, unable really to even make a few words come out, suddenly English starts to flow through him. And he says here, where are you? Oh yeah, I never could remember afterward a word that I had spoken. <laughs> By discreet inquiry, I learned from a number of passengers, you gave an inspiring lecture in stirring and correct English. <laughs> At this delightful news, I humbly thanked my guru for his timely help, realizing anew that he was ever with me, setting at naught all barriers of time and space. This is something we constantly try for, isn't it? To be able to draw the presence of the Guru, the support, the grace, knowing that time and space doesn't exist, and even more so now that they're not in their physical bodies. But whether Sri Yukteswar was in his physical body or not, anyway, he was not with Paramahansa Yogananda at that time. Anyway, his consciousness had to go well beyond that limited form that sat in Serampore or in Puri. And that's what it continues to do even today. Once in a while, during the remainder of the ocean trip, I experienced a few apprehensive twinges mm -hmm. about the coming English lecture ordeal at the Boston Congress. So although he'd had this really miraculous moment, it doesn't mean that every moment is going to be miraculous. Doesn't mean every time we call for help it'll come. Doesn't mean each time we'll be able to overcome perhaps whatever it is that we fear. And the humility you know, of knowing that, you know, I have also butterflies in the stomach. And, you know, not taking for granted that that grace would always be there for him. Lord, I prayed, let, please let my inspiration be thyself and not again the laughter bombs of the audience. So, of course, in those 10 minutes when he was sitting, everybody started laughing at him. I mean, you know, you can really imagine how a traumatic an experience yeah. that can be. You're out there, you've put yourself in front of all these hundreds of people and then you're not able to really deliver. So he's saying, don't remind me of those laughter bombs it's an interesting, actually, statement. Yeah. Don't let fear yeah. be my inspiration. I want you to be my inspiration. And that's how we are. We usually, oh, I remember I did this badly, so this time I really have to do it well. And we remember how we felt at that time. We remember what others thought of us at that time. And so fear becomes a primary motivation for us to do better the next time. But here Yoganandaji's prayer is, don't let me remember those laughter bombs of the audience and let that fear be what propels me. But I want you, Lord, to be my inspiration. The city of Sparta, which is the ship they were on, docked near Boston in late September. Do you remember when he got on? 
I guess it was like a couple of a months month, journey. It was a month trip, isn't it? Okay. I remember reading somewhere it was around a month, I think. Must have been. On the 6th of October, I addressed the Congress with my maiden speech in America. It was well received. I sighed in relief. The magnanimous secretary of the American Unitarian Association wrote the following comment in, the pu in a published account of the Congress proceedings. So this is from a little article. Swami Yogananda, delegate from the Brahmacharya Ashram of Ranchi, India, brought the greetings of his association to the Congress. In fluent English and a forcible delivery, he gave an address of a philosophical character on the science of religion. That was the topic he chose, the science of religion, which has been printed in pamphlet, pamphlet form for a wider distribution. Religion, he maintained, is universal and it is one. We cannot possibly universalize particular customs and convictions, but the common element in religion can be universalized, and we can ask all alike to follow and obey it. So this is what the president of the American Unitarian Association picked up mm -hmm. from, from Yoganandaji's talk. I'm sure the entire talk is available somewhere since it got onto a pamphlet. Due to father's generous check, I was able to remain in America after the Congress was over. Four happy years were spent in humble circumstances in Boston. Now, of course, he just puts that one line in there and it doesn't build on it particularly. But we know later on from many accounts that um, those were really humble years for Yoganandaji. He was in Boston. He used to live. He lived in a one room in, uh, that he had rented at the YMCA. And it took a long time, little by little, for him to awaken enough interest in people. You know, he got a lot of um, invitations by different associations. Oh, the ladies club here wants him to come and do a talk. Oh, this men's, you know, cricket, whatever, or baseball association. You know, things like that. Little churches here and there invited him. But it wasn't that people, a lot of people came. But disciples were very few. It took a long time before he gathered enough energy, enough magnetism, enough interest that he could then in fact start that larger mission. Even adjust himself to a new city because yeah. it takes a, a little country. time once you start approaching a larger audiences. You know, you have to adjust uh, how you present the teachings, the kind of words that Americans were used to or the kind of concepts that they would be appealed to. So I'm sure that uh, Yogananda didn't go to America imposing a specific teaching, but trying to find ways how these Americans would be more receptive to receive this message of self-realization. So I'm sure it wasn't just about planning the logistics and the practical aspect of all these lectures and meeting all these people and giving so many classes, but what I'm going to speak about, what is the subject that Americans would like to hear about, how I'm going to change their uh, consciousness. I mean, and it, it was a very different country than India, so I'm sure he had to <laughs> figure out and ask, you know, his 
new friends, you know, how to go about and trusting that, yes, this was something that God asked from him, but I'm sure it wasn't easy to bring a mission to the mm-hmm. West. I gave public lectures, taught classes, and wrote a book of poems called Songs of the Soul. Starting a transcontinental tour in the summer of 1924, I spoke before thousands in the principal cities, ending my western trip with a vacation in the beautiful Alaskan North. With the help of large-hearted students, by the end of 1925, I had established an American headquarters at the Mount Washington Estates in Los Angeles. The building is the one I had seen years before in my vision at Kashmir. I hastened to send Sri Yukteswar pictures of these distant American activities. We'll talk about what he says. But So it took five years before Paramahansa Yogananda finally established something that resembled a stable, you know, strong, uh, both interest. He understood, okay, this is what, you know, people here need. This is how I can approach these teachings. This is how I can guide them towards self-realization. And enough support as well for that to be able to establish something more permanent. But, you know, so feels good that it took five years for him and we've been here in Mumbai three years. So we've got, it, we've got two more years before we kind of at least keep pace with but, our guru. Yeah. And you can see, you know, like it, it went fast, you know, you can see the grace already unfolding because four years is not that much to establish a war with a with a property i don't know how many acres this property is i don't know either okay so big property i mean big building and and it it was used to be a hotel it used to be a hotel so you can see already the magnetism of this work and this was just the first few years and there he was already established in America, already having a central point of, of a physical place where people could come and, and just feel the essence of his teachings. Because every time he went out, he had to adjust a little bit according to wherever he went. But those who came to his place, to this place, they could feel a deeper vibration because he didn't have to adjust anything. This is who he was. These are the teachings he represented. And having a physical space gave the chance to those deeper disciples to come and experience. This is not just a nice lecture, a nice concert, but this is a lifestyle. Yogananda, through the building of this property, was offering more than classes was offering a lifestyle dedicated to self-transformation to the divine so it was quite extraordinary that in four years yeah a big step a big step yes i hastened to send sri yukteswar pictures you remember this little vision that yogananda ji had uh, i don't know if uh, which chapter it was, I guess it was in when we go to Kashmir, but also during a class that Sri Yukteswar was giving and, and Sri Yukteswar says to him, you're not paying attention. And it's like, you are somewhere building three, you know, yes. retreats or something. And one of them 
of course, was this Mount Washington Estates on top of a mountain, as it said. And so Sri Yukteswar replies in Bengali, Child of my heart, O Yogananda, seeing the photos of your school and students, what joy comes in my life I cannot express in words. I am melting in joy to see your yoga students of different cities. Beholding your methods in chant affirmations, healing vibrations, and divine healing prayers, I cannot refrain from thanking you from my heart. Seeing the gate, the, wind, the winding hilly way upward, and the beautiful scenery spread out beneath the Mount Washington Estates, I yearn to behold it all with my own eyes. Everything here is going on well. Through the grace of God, may you ever be in bliss. Sri Yukteswar Giri. Years sped by. I lectured in every part of my new land and addressed hundreds of clubs, colleges, churches, and groups of every denomination. So he's been very busy. <laughs> it just hasn't been a, all right, yeah. let them come to me. Let's see who comes. <laughs> I've got my little place here now in Los Angeles. Ajao. You know, he's just yeah. had to go out. He's had to put tremendous amounts of energy. And he was a little bit of a curiosity. So everybody's like, who's this guy? You know, this dark skin, long hair, orange robe. It was just nobody had ever really seen anything like that. And then they'd heard things like, oh, he does miracles and he can do this and he can do that. So many came, thousands came, in fact. Uh, to each of his lecture, but as he would sometimes say, you know, 5,000 may come, but we'd be lucky to have five who actually adopt these teachings. So here he says, tens of thousands of Americans received yoga initiation. To them, I dedicated a new book of prayer thoughts in 1929, Whispers from Eternity, with a preface by Amalita Gali Kurchi. Amalita Gali Kurchi was a disciple of Yogananda's and also at that time a very, very famous uh, soprano, an operatic singer. I give here from the book a poem titled God, 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 composed one night as I stood on a lecture platform. So let's just read this poem really quickly. From the depths of slumber as I ascend, the spiral stairway of wakefulness, I whisper, God, God, God. Thou art the food, and when I break my fast of nightly separation from thee, I taste thee and mentally say, God, God, God. No matter where I go, the spotlight of my mind ever keeps turning on thee. And in the battle din of activity, my silent war cry will be, God, God, God. When boisterous storms of trials shriek, and when worries howl at me, I will drown their clamor, loudly chanting, God, God, God. And when my mind weaves dreams with threads of memories, on that magic cloth, I will emboss God, God, God. Every night in time of deepest sleep, my peace dreams and calls joy, joy, joy. 
and my joy comes singing evermore as God, God, God. In waking, eating, working, dreaming, sleeping, serving, meditating, chanting, divinely loving, my soul constantly hums, unheard by any God, God, God. How beautiful. Just a lovely, you can say, template for our day. When I wake up, God, God, God. When I have my breakfast, God, God, God. When I'm out at work, God, God, God. When I'm in trouble, God, God, God. When I'm about to go back to bed, God, God, God. When everything's wonderful, God, God, God. No matter what's going on, God, God, God. Sometimes, usually on the first of the month, when the bills rolled in for the upkeep of Mount Washington, and other self-realization fellowship centers, I thought longingly of the simple peace of India. Now, America was very different in this way too, in which Yoganandaji had to really take care of everything. He was the only one essentially raising the funds, you know, bringing in donors, bringing in money, planning out where, what's going to happen. He would jokingly say to his disciples, if I was in India, I could just sit around and the disciples would do everything. But here, I have to take care of you even. Not just the teachings, not just where I have to be, not just the property, but every disciple as well. Yoganandaji had to practically take care of in these early days because they left whatever they were doing to come to dedicate their lives to God and, you know, someone had to figure out how that's going to work for them. And he had the vision of what was trying to, he was trying to accomplish and none of them knew. So it was even a bigger responsibility to to explain and sometimes without even words what he was trying to to accomplish, really. So when those bills came in at the end of here, we can totally connect to that. Every time that bill comes in, we say, oh, do we really want this house? Do we really need a work? Wouldn't it be simpler if we could just, just to meditate. meditate somewhere, go to the forest, forget everybody else, forget this camera, forget all this, you know, classes that we have yeah. to plan. And so he also longingly thought about the simple piece of India. But daily, I saw a widening understanding between West and East, and my soul rejoiced. I have found the great heart of America expressed in the wondrous lines by Emma Lazarus, carved at the base of the Statue of Liberty, the mother of exiles. So we all know the Statue of Liberty, which is in the New York Harbor. And so she, this lady, as she's called Lady Liberty, is also known as the mother of exiles. Now, in the early days of America, the people who came to America were actually, you know, not the most refined or the most well-off people. It was those who were running away from persecution, running away. Even many of them were uh, criminals to a certain degree, condemned. So they would be given a choice. You can either be in prison or you can go to America and work there for a year, and after you work there for a year, you'll be free. And so a lot of people would come there. So in those early days, America was essentially being populated by what other countries would kind of call their, you know, the scraps of their population, the refuse. And so this uh, statue was erected, and this beautiful poem was written below by Emma Lazarus that Yoganandaji mentions here. From her beacon hand, 
glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbour that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. How beautiful. Um, I like this first line here. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp. You know, America was this new land, just newly discovered. It had no history. It had no tradition. It had nothing. And so here she is. She's saying, all you ancient lands over there, you keep all your storied pomp. Like, oh, this is who we are and this is where we come from. And look at our traditions and look at who we are descendants of and so on and so forth. She said, you send me, send me your wretched. Send me those who are yearning to breathe free. Send me the teeming masses because for them do I hold my lamp beside the golden door. And it's just beautiful. There's a chant of Paramahansa Yogananda's. They have heard thy name. The blind, the lame, halt. There you go. The blind, the halt and the lame. They have come to thy door, Lord. Give them an audience. And that just reminds me, this poem reminds me of that chant. It's those people that we think, ah, you know, these are the people. Those are the ones that, as even Christ said, they are the ones that are dear to me, that man shuns. And so we need to be very, and so it's beautiful to see just the vibration of America when it was starting. It was just, send me those that you think are useless. Send me those that you don't care for and let me guide them to a land of freedom. And uh, that's a high ideal to live to. And it's something each of us can also kind of awaken in our heart. Anybody that others reject, you know, all the more reason for us to open our hearts to them, because that's what God would do. In fact, I was thinking before we finish this, chap this chapter, let's come back to the previous paragraph. No, when he had those moments of every month, pain that be like, oh, I wish, I wish, I was with my guru in India. But then he says, I saw a widening understanding between West and East, and my soul rejoiced. And, and we can see here his desire for unity. Uh, and this is why he was born. This is why he went to America to unite. And, and the moment, even if he saw a little bit of that happening, that was enough for him to sacrifice what he left behind. And for me, this sentence is, is, is very powerful because many of us, when we come on the spiritual path, we are so focused on our own individual personal growth and we don't really care that much about people around us as long as I am growing and as long as I am learning and receiving what I have to receive but if you really want to become a master in this lifetime if you want to become a jiva mukta if you want to become a very high evolved human being we need to start thinking in terms of unity 
what can I do to start uniting people, which means harmonizing. What can I do to unite myself with those around me, with God through my meditation, in my way of thinking? I mean, unity, I think, is, is the essence of our path. And the more we try to distance ourselves from everybody else, I think the farthest we are from God. I mean, God is equally alive. And, and vibrant in every single human being. So, so the more we unite each other, the more we just break those walls of division and separation, the more we are living a life of a master. And, and that was enough for Yogananda to spend the rest of his life in America just because he was seeing a little bit of that unity between East and West, between every devotee uniting themselves, you know, with the divine and with their own guru bhais. I mean, this is remarkable. This is something I, I really would love to perfect in myself, the consciousness of unity, when I don't reject anything, where I don't criticize anything, where I just don't push anything away, where everything is a part of myself. And I think that's a great state of consciousness to look for and work towards. <laughs> okay, time to move on to chapter 38. Mm-hmm. And this is Luther Burbank. So now, of course, Yogananda is in America, so we get to hear a little bit about those people that he met there. This chapter is titled, Luther Burbank, A Saint Amidst the Roses. Now, one first very interesting thing is that the autobiography of a yogi itself is dedicated to Luther Burbank. The most important book Yoganandaji ever wrote, the book that has perhaps had the most impact Mm -hmm. um, in spiritual seekers across the world, millions. And the book is dedicated to Luther Burbank, and then he writes there, An American Saint. Swamiji had this little comical moment when he first picked up the autobiography when he was 22. He opened the book and he read that first page that said, dedicated to Luther Burbank, an American saint. And Swamiji immediately said, there are no saints in America. And he just put, he put the book back because he said, this book can't be good because if they're talking about an American saint. Of course, he said, but when I went back home, the book continued to draw me. Mm-hmm. So the very next day I went and I picked up the book again. So let's find out who Luther Burbank was, a saint amidst the roses. Now in America, Luther Burbank and amongst perhaps people who are interested in plants and flowers and vegetables and such, horticulturists, he's fairly well known because he has created and discovered many, many, many species, most of which are named after him, Burbank roses, Burbank peaches, Burbank potatoes, so on and so forth. So let's find out who he was. The secret of improved plant breeding, apart from scientific knowledge, is love. Luther Burbank uttered this wisdom as I walked beside him in his Santa Rosa garden. We halted near a bed of edible cacti. While I was conducting experiments to make spineless cacti, He continued, I often talked to the plants to create a vibration of love. You have nothing to fear, I would tell them. 
You don't need your defensive thorns. I will protect you. Gradually, the useful plant of the desert emerged in a thornless variety. How beautiful. This is how he was bringing out, creating, discovering these new ways to uh, breed these plants. You just have this cactus and every day he talked to it. You don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to be defensive. I'll protect you. I love you just over and over again until the plant started to respond. That's all right. These little thorns that I have everywhere that is, you know, in order to really hurt somebody in case if they come at me, then I don't need these thorns and little by little. I don't know how long this process may have taken. But it's remarkable to seeing, yeah, like that's the tool you are using. I mean, that's your experiment almost that you do this daily and you just infuse your project. You talk to your project, you talk to that plan, you talk to your children, you talk to yourself with those vibrations of love daily, constantly, even more deeply every day. I mean, and and you see the results, you know, an incredible change of personality and and that's the only thing, yeah. (laughs) That's the only thing he used, almost the power of affirmation, but perfected in such a way that that's the only thing he needed. And he proved that just by infusing something, someone mentally and talking with that vibration of love, you can really change those around you. This is a wonderful, really a wonderful practice for us to Mm -hmm. experiment with. And we need to have the patience he did because it's not going to, you know, these cactus didn't just next day say, all right, I don't need my thorns, boom, done. And it took a long time for them. And it took, in fact, in his particular case, probably generations. The next one born of this cactus had a little less. And then the next one born of that cactus had a little less. Until eventually, you know, after how many knows, how many, God knows how many breedings, Mm -hmm. that final product. And so even with people, a lot of people, especially with their children, just talk about the need to be firm and I have to tell them this and I have to make sure they study and... And sometimes, you know, yeah, that's important. I mean, there's a practical reality there. But also, how many times do we just tell them, I really love you. You don't need to worry about anything. Even if nothing comes out, even if you fail in everything you do, we'll still love you. We'll still always be there. And if that vibration is more than the other, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, then the child you will see will also be able to drop off his defensive thorns. I was charmed at this miracle. Please, dear Luther, give me a few cacti leaves to plant in my garden at Mount Washington. A workman standing nearby started to strip off some leaves, but Burbank prevented him. I myself will pluck them for the Swami. He handed me three leaves, which later I planted, rejoicing as they grew to huge estate. And you can still see them there in yes. Mount Washington. And what a little exchange. You know, I want to give this myself. from my own hands. I mm. want to add, you know, this is my gift, a part of who I am. I want mm. to do this for him. So sweet. The great horticulturist told me that his first notable triumph was the large potato, <laughs> now known by his name. With the indefeatable, indefeatable, 
fatigability. There we go. The fatigability. That means that he cannot be fatigued. He does not get tired. With the indefatigability of genius, he went on to present the world with hundreds of crossed improvements on nature. His new Burbank varieties of tomato, corn, squash, cherries, plums, nectarines, berries, poppies, lilies, roses. Wow. <laughs> so he, he was also a very busy man. I forced, I focused my camera as Luther led me through the famous walnut tree by which he had proved that natural evolution can be telescopically hastened. In only 16 years, he said, this walnut tree reached a state of abundant nut production to which an unaided nature would have brought the tree in twice that time. When I read this line, it reminded me of the chapter on Kriya Yoga, where Master says that just by nature alone, by harmonious living, just by daily you know, practicing at least the yamas and the niyamas, if nothing else, with no sadhana particularly of, of any kind, it takes one million years of natural living for the soul to evolve and awaken enough into God consciousness. So that's already a great thing. It's like, wow, automatically, no matter what I do, nature itself will propel me towards a greater and greater expansion. Of course, he's got a caveat of natural living, of harmonious living. He puts in a few words there that none of us are doing. We don't eat harmoniously. We don't live harmoniously. We don't act harmoniously. And so the process gets a lot longer. But then he says, through Kriya Yoga, you can hasten spiritual evolution. And so in the same way, you've got Luther Burbank showing that you can hasten physical evolution as well, even physically. And so when we're talking about habits that are ingrained in us, thought patterns that are ingrained in us, we don't have to wait it out incarnation after incarnation for nature and experience to finally shift us. Every process can be hastened, of course, if you know how. <laughs> Burbank knew how. Burbank's little adopted daughter came romping with her dog into the garden. She is my human plant, Luther waved at her affectionately. I see humanity now as one vast plant, needing for its highest fulfillments only love, the natural blessings of the great outdoors, and intelligent crossing and selection. In the span of my own lifetime, I have observed such wondrous progress in plant evolution that I look forward optimistically to a healthy, happy world as soon as its children are taught the principles of simple and rational living. We must return to nature and nature's God. So you can see he has a very deep philosophy by which he lives his life. And what does he say is needed? Love, the outdoors, nature, one of the reasons Narayani and I moved a little bit out here, just a little bit more nature in our lives. And then he says, which is an interesting term he uses, intelligent crossing and selection. So, of mm -hmm. course, for him, in his um, field. field, thank you, 
how did he create all these different varieties is he crossed them together okay this plum is per this has you know the juiciness and this has the sweetness and boom together juicy and sweet this has the sturdiness and this has the whateverness boom together and so he started crossing intelligently understanding you can't just randomly cross you can't say oh i'll take this apple and i'll take this you know walnut and oh no why aren't they <laughs> crossing together you need to know what will work with what who will accept what who will be willing to bring and merge together to unite with and in our particular awareness as human beings as the human plant for us intelligent crossing and selection is our environment the people with whom we exchange with whom we cross yeah, our energy the people that are around us all the time the people who give and receive from us our qualities our energy oh that person is patient i want to spend more time with this person because i want that patience in my life because i'm very impatient i'm very restless i get worried very easily but tendency is i get worried easily and then i tend to give my worry to everybody else around me i don't think about who can i draw from who can i cross with who can i intelligently select to have around me all the time and so these three very simple i mean we've not even added to this say spiritual practices or sadhanas mm -hmm. but even just these three things love which is boy that's hard in itself the outside nature, nature. and then our environment mm -hmm. the people around us to be selective of the people around us so that we only receive those qualities and give of course those qualities that will benefit that will actually make a difference because you can be with people who you know you think you want to help them but there is no way you can cross with them they're very close to what you want to give them and so there's no energy that will actually exchange and so sometimes we spend so much of our time and effort thinking that oh because they are my mo mother or my father or my brother or my whoever therefore i'm obligated to somehow yeah, hammer you know these thoughts and qualities into them well that's not necessarily true they're there they have their own flow and their own process but they're their own hardy fruit and they don't want to necessarily change and evolve and they don't really even need to change and evolve if you want to change and evolve you have to look to what is going to help you what selective crossing are you going to have to do to become better mm -hmm. and maybe when you're there perhaps then you might even be able to cross with the one person that you were trying in the first place then maybe you'll be able to give them that quality once you have it fully in you it's a beautiful kind of way to look yes. at it the human plant luther you would delight in my ranchi school with its outdoor classes and atmosphere of joy and simplicity my words touched the chord closest to burbank's heart child education he plied me with questions interest gleaming from his deep serene eyes swami ji he said finally schools like yours are the only hope of a future millennium i am in revolt against the educational systems of our time severed from nature and stifling of all individuality I am with you heart and soul in your practical ideals of education. 
uh, again, you know, he's just such a deep kind of the insight that he has, these two words that he brings out of the education of, our, of today. And things are changing now. Of course, this is the 1920s we're talking about, but they're changing slowly. <laughs> and he says the two main things that he's against with the education system is it's severed from nature. So, of course, you know, we're in these little boxes and concrete boxes all the time. We have no relationship with the world around us and nature, not just as trees and grass and just nature, even other human beings in terms of how we interact with them, because the interaction in a classroom setting is just very, very limited, very controlled to a certain degree. And then, of course, the stifling of all individuality, because we've got these classes of 30, 40, 50 kids, you just have to treat all of them exactly the same. Oh, here's A, B, C, D, here's one, two, three, four. Whether you understand it or not, whether you like it or not, whether it's making any sense to you, whether it's actually changing you, whether you're growing in the process. Who cares? One, two, three, four, A, B, C, D, over and over again, until you're no longer looking at those children as individuals, you're just looking at them as, this is a group, I need to throw at this group, whatever is my work, and then this group moves forward, boom, and the next next batch comes and it's just like cookies, you know, just cutting the cookie, making the cookie, moving the cookie, and over and over again. And so to look at children as individuals, because each of them have certain strengths, certain weaknesses, and then how do I communicate and convey mathematics to somebody who's more creative, to somebody who's more restless? And what would be the way that math would make sense to this child so that even if he can't get it like the other children, he'll get it. And his love for math, his love for learning will be awakened. So, unfortunately, such an uh, education system does exist. Swamiji started education for life with this very idea to treat every child as an individual soul fully capable in their own way to grasp absolutely everything that needs to be grasped if only we can understand the child enough first just, just a few days ago some of us were having a conversation over lunch about children nowadays the kind of education and environment they are i mean we just finished hopefully <laughs> a pandemic and that has forced children to communicate and interact mostly through a computer screen. I mean, that, I, I can only imagine how much damaging that can be for children's nervous system and their sensitivity and their ability to experience through their senses because they can't. They spend day after day, hour after hour, not able to play with other children, to run around, to experience that learning through other vehicles, but through that computer screen. And I think that's what we are missing the most. I think this is something that we must bring to our children and make sure that every weekend or once a week, especially right now, we just take our children, we take ourselves to a place of nature and walk barefoot and or go to the beach or just interact more with nature because the wisdom that nature can offer us 
it's so precious and we are almost ignoring that and we are boxing ourselves in just very few ways of learning so i will urge each one of us to start implementing what the rishis and yogananda and all these american saints have studied have proved that if we are spending more time in nature in harmony with it the more the sense of well-being that each one of us uh, is looking for will received uh, we will receive so let's let's make a point especially uh, to our children just bring them put them in the middle of some sort of nature or plants give them a relationship with nature where they can start also experimenting this themselves i mean talking to plants i mean this is such a beautiful experience that a child can have you not know, to have that sort of more refined communication so i think that's something the world nowadays is missing and we all can be responsible and making sure that we help in bringing nature more alive into our lives today later in the at the afternoon we hope to bring these kids yeah. these 50 children from the orphanage to the ashram let them run around in the grass and whatever they need to do so we're trying to find we've just you know recently established a relationship with them to find ways to bring this idea of education for life in whatever way these children will be able to receive which we don't know yet so the idea behind going and cleaning the their orphanage with them today and then bringing them here is first let's just get to know who yeah, these children yeah. are because it's not like we know education for life we know what everybody needs we are going to you know bombard these children and make them better because we know what's good for them yeah, as opposed me, to let me know yeah, you let me you? see your tendencies let me see what you know calls out to you let me let me see your potential and see how can i help you to manifest that potential i mean that should be our real service just identify what's their soul's nature and help them to express that in the best of our abilities not what we think they should be or how they ought ought, ought to be ought to be that's why it's a nice um, simile between mm-hmm. humans and plants and more specifically children because every plant is so unique isn't mm-hmm. it uh, narayani and i are very bad, bad with plants, plants so we're not the best people to say this but we we know enough that they're unique they're different yeah you know some need more water some need more sunshine some need more whatever just every plant needs different things someone has to be in this corner someone has to be half in the shade and half in the sun i mean there are just so many realities but my kind of limited awareness of a plant is a plant needs soil and it needs sun and it needs water, water. you know just very blanket statement and so if i were given the job fortunately people are smart enough not to give me this job to take care of any garden this is what i would do all right everybody just gets a lot of water all right everybody goes into the sun all right my job here is done and that's a lot like the education system here okay here's your abcds okay here go to school your my job is done i'm a great parent now i'm a great teacher now because i just gave them water and i just gave them sunshine and that's all they need 
But when you're sensitive enough, you're like, wait a minute, this plant, look, it's going this way. I need to turn it. I need to move it. Oh, it's getting too much water. This one's not getting enough. And you start to realize, in fact, boy, plants are just very, very, very unique, very particular, very fussy even, you know, and they have a personality and they just want different things. And if you're paying attention, which I don't, (laughs) they'll tell you what they want. They'll show you what they need. And then, of course, so becomes true for humans, for children, even adults. As I was taking leave of the gentle sage, he autographed a small volume and presented it to me. Here is my book on the training of the human plant. I've read this book. It's really, really nice if ever you find it. I think it's very easily available online. The training of the human plant. New types of trainings are needed, fearless experiments. At times, the most daring trials have succeeded in bringing out the best in fruits and flowers. Educational innovations for children should likewise become more numerous and more courageous. I love those words. More experiments. Mm-hmm. Fearless experimentation even with our own lives fearless experimentation is this working does this work does just because everybody tells me this is how life should be does it actually work because i don't see that many happy faces as i should be seeing and so fearless experimentation more numerous and more courageous i read his little book that night with intense awareness intense interest His eye envisioning a glorious future for the race, he wrote. The most stubborn living thing in this world, the most difficult to swerve, is a plant once fixed in certain habits. (laughs) Sounds a lot like us. (laughs) The most difficult thing, the most stubborn living thing in this world and the most difficult to swerve, to redirect, to change is a plant once fixed in certain habits. Remember that this plant has preserved its individuality all through the ages. Perhaps it is one which can be traced backward through eons of time in the very rocks themselves, never having varied to any great extent in all those vast periods. Do you suppose after all these ages of repetition, the plant does not become possessed of a will, if you so choose to call it of unparalleled tenacity? Indeed, there are plants, like certain of the palms, so persistent that no human power has yet been able to change them. The human will is a weak thing, beside the will of a plant. But see how this whole plant's lifelong stubbornness is broken simply by blending a new life with it, making, by crossing, a complete and powerful change in its life. Then, when the break comes, fix it by these generations of patient supervision and selection And the new plant sets out upon its new way, never again to return to the old. Its tenacious will broken 
and changed at last. Beautiful place to stop here, but such a correlation to our own life. Just repetition. You know, we've just been stubborn. We've just been repeating. This is how I am. This is how I act. This is how I react. This is how I respond to these things. And the more we keep repeating the same thing for lifetimes in our particular case, the harder and harder it gets for us to then be open to express greater states of awareness to change even in little ways. And oftentimes that is why such hardships have to come our way. You see, trials, difficulties, all these issues, they come to help us become a little bit more malleable, a little bit more, all right, adaptable. Isn't that the most you know, powerful tool that nature has, its ability to adapt? So if you take a species and say, oh, this species can adapt and this species is very stubborn and it won't change, you'd say, yeah, I want the adaptable one because that's what is going to be needed. When it rains, it does certain things that it doesn't take too much water and dies. When it's dry, it conserves the water, so on and so forth. That's what we need to be, to realize that otherwise, as Yoganandaji said, we become psychological antiques, unable to receive any help, unable to express any change. So, um, go, go ahead. No, I was just saying, read this chapter again. It's actually, we've not finished it yet, but there are just some very fascinating correlations between this whole, you know, breeding and rearing of plants and, of course, the rearing of the human plant. I was thinking it would be fun to, for this week, to choose that human plant <laughs> that you want to mix more with this week and just see how by crossing and spending more time with that human plant, I mean, something that that plant has and you want for yourselves as well, and you want to implement in you to help you to grow as well as another beautiful plant, I would say, let's do that. Let's see which beautiful plant I have, human plant I have in my life, and has these amazing qualities that I want to imbibe Mm -hmm. in myself as well. So I think this will be a a fun thing. You don't need to tell that person yeah. <laughs> that you want to hang out with them, to just absorb from them, but just make a point to choose your environment wisely and to use the beauty of your friendships and you know their beautiful God-given gifts and qualities to, to integrate them as part of your soul evolution because they are there for a reason. So find a way to unite yourself with them and take the best of them and you, in exchange, give them back the best of yourself. Well, everybody have a fabulous day and we'll see you all tomorrow. We're having a satsang with question and answers. If there is any question, please read.